HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin, and this is Greenhorns Radio. Radio for young farmers, by young farmers, and, you know, very various. We've mostly been interviewing young farmers, but started interviewing uh, old-timers, giving away their land, and uh, ag professionals of other kinds as we expand our notion of relation and kinship and intergenerational truth-making that is required of place-based work and um, work in the real world as we accommodate our ideals to the circumstances we face in this economy and on this landscape. And today's guests are pretty um, powerful accommodators of their, um, well, they're just working in so many spheres. It's really an amazing farm. Uh, It's called Soul Fire Farm, and the farmers are Jonah and Leah farmers and partners in crime. Um, welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, Severin. It's great to be here. Hi. So maybe i just ask you briefly each to introduce yourselves and the farm and the where is the farm in the world and what does the farm grow? Sure. Um, I'll start. My name is Leah Penniman, and I'm the owner and educator at Soul Fire Farm. We're in Grafton, New York, uh, which is about 35 minutes outside of Albany. And we grow almost 100 different varieties of vegetables, and we also raise chickens for both eggs and meat. And we focus the distribution of our food um, in neighborhoods that have been termed food deserts um, in Albany and Troy, where there is not ready access to affordable and culturally appropriate food. So that's me. Um, I'm Jonah Vitali Wolf, and I run the farm operations and um, the apprenticeship program. And um, you know what I what I would like to add to that is just you know we it, we like to we do use the term food deserts. It's something that 
kind of the, the USDA has put out there, but, but even more so we like to think of it as food apartheid, like really addressing these issues as systemic separation of people um, and communities and their access to food. And, and we really take that to heart and are driven by um, a very strong mission uh, to that work. So let's talk a little bit about the landscape, um, the landscape of agriculture in your own kind of lineage and heritage. Um, I feel like the the elongation of of the work and the focus on the long term that reaches back into the past, and your focus on restorative justice um, is unique and 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 remarkable and and super worthwhile. And I think. You are pretty good spokespeople for for thinking in those broad terms. Um, Leah, do you want to talk a little bit about why you choose to do the work in this way, and um, especially your work in Haiti and with African American farmers? Will you help contextualize that for us? That is a huge and powerful question. Thanks for asking that. Um, so I am an African heritage woman. I'm a Haitian American. And there's so many ways that I feel like this work is really important for the liberation of our people. You know, it's not just about the food and the land, but it's also about sovereignty uh, for all people. And, you know, the African-American story of land loss, I think, is one that's little known. Uh, right after the Civil War, um, almost 20% of agricultural producers in the United States were African-American um, and that, you know, the peak was in 1920, and the, it's declined to less than 1% today. And uh, black people have lost over 12 million acres of land, and that's rising. And black farmers are aging out, um, tend to have lower incomes, and total incomes and farm incomes than white farmers. And we are not going to be able to solve the the issues related to food and related to land in our communities if we allow all of the power over in the food system to just be dominated by one population. So um, at the farm, we run youth programming to help train youth in leadership skills and farming skills, cooking and nutrition, um, and reconnect to the land and try to heal some of the trauma that has been associated with land because as much as land loss is really a discrimination issue, I mean, the USDA um, you know, is in process of paying a settlement for the, the outright discrimination and there was violence against black farmers. So there's all of this, but there's also a piece where I think our people mixed up the oppression of slavery and the oppression of racism with the land herself. And so to get back on the land and to notice that, you know, lettuce tastes good and that when you put your hands on the earth, you can produce something useful for your community. You can pick flowers and make your mother smile. Like all of these things are also part of healing our own trauma and reconnecting to the land because that was something, that relationship was something that was stolen. Um, and that's just domestic. I mean, we also have been working in Haiti since the 2010 earthquake. I think the earthquake was a big wake-up call for a lot of Haitian Americans to pay attention to where our ancestors had come from and to do our part in uh, restoring the dignity of our island nation. You know, as you probably know, like Haiti was the first black republic, um, the first nation in the world to outlaw slavery. So it was a really proud and strong heritage. Like nowhere else did a band of um, farmers who were enslaved, like take up weapons and defeat the biggest armies in the world. You know, really proud history. But there's um, 
Haiti angered the European nations in doing that and has just been sort of paying retribution ever since. So going there, working with farmers, we've done a massive reforestation project at the epicenter of the earthquake and composting projects and solar technology and all of this, like really following the lead of the Haitian farmers and just trying to provide resource for um, those indigenous ways of knowing to be manifested. Um, so that's been incredible. And the restorative justice piece is just new this year. We um, started partnering with the Albany County uh, DA. They, wa- they wanted to have an alternative to incarceration and an alternative to restitution programs for young people. So we're experimenting with the idea of, you know, using, modifying our youth programming to be able to provide a meaningful healing and reconciliation experience for these young people. Um, and so far, it's good. It was just a pilot this year, but we have high hopes that um, that type of model will be emulated so that, um, you know, we can have true justice instead of this sort of punitive mass incarceration um, school-to-prison pipeline thing that we have going on right now. So big answer to a big question. I hope I addressed it. Well, I, you know, it's, um, again, elongating our remembrance of this work the work of land stewardship, the many thousands of hands that have touched the land and passed over the land um, before our own. And, you know, the individual, let's, how do I say this? I feel like we live in a moment with our email box and our Facebook profile and the kind of like avatar immediacy of um, the secular economy that doesn't always remind us of how we, where we've come from, and who, who was dispossessed of this land before we got it, and 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 um, and in in agriculture also, we're you know being then faced with precarity in terms of making a living in a climate where seventy percent of the work is done, the farm work is done by workers who don't have citizenship. Um, so that really is undermining the value of our labor, and then the land is has an inflated value, inflated for development, inflated for fracking, inflated for holiday homes, inflated for subsidized farming, um, inflated for various reasons. And then another critique that we feel as persons on that landscape is, well, why are you all white? Or, you know, why, why is agriculture so white? Or why are you having to sell to rich people? And so I think the remembrance of this history isn't just, you know, to be good kids and study our history and or, you know, be virtuous in some way. I think it's a really powerful context to help us um, not impugn ourselves for facing the barriers that we face that are really systemic issues Um, and trying to, you know, straddle economy and ecology and, you know, the past and the future is going to inevitably be a strain and it kind of helps to know that going in. So... Um, sorry for uh, platforming off your, I guess I drank too much tea maybe again. Um, Jonah, tell <laughs> me a little bit about your partnership here. You've got a um, super dynamic lady uh, and partner. Um, what are the, what's the benefit of farming in this kind of a partnership where activism and practice uh, interplay with each other in the love mix? Oh, another um, wow! Really, really in in depth question. Um, gosh, where to even start? I think that this project, um, Soul Fire Farm, 
having children together, um, growing this community that is so dear to us that, that we would even call it family. Um, you know, they're all manifestations of our overflowing of love. And if we can, you know, really step into each of these projects from that, from that place of connection, it's, it's, it's as if they all kind of are these ripples. Um, and it's, you know, that, that obviously is kind of this esoteric painting a pretty picture of, yeah, you know, we're in love and create more love in the world, but it's also really hard and it's challenging. You know, we are life partners, we are business partners, we are co-parents, um, we are artists together. It's, um, it's really an incredible experience to share something so intimate and so many so many things so intimately with someone. Um, and it takes content, constant, uh, like dynamic and intentional engagement uh, because there's just too many pieces to, to do it without that. Um, I don't know if that answers, answers your question directly. It's kind of a, 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 such a big question. But we work really hard. We work really hard at um, maintaining our own personal relationship from which is kind of the jumping off point for everything else. And, and we do feel that if, if we're struggling in our own relationship, then it seems like other, other places struggle as well. And so we know we have to go right back to the foundation, which is our connection and our love. Yeah, over and over again, I, when I'm looking for a way to talk about that impossible straddle between generations and, you know, this overvalued land and undervalued labor. And it's like um, the family becomes the, like the last frontier of a, of a relationship like the, you know, how do you treat your land like family and how do you, um, Mm. you know, like, or like a child. And, and once it gets to that point, it really feels like things open up. Um, Mm -hmm. For folks, so um, maybe we could talk a little bit about the way that the kids who are who you're working with, um, or the kids, the people, some of the experience that you have in terms of the the transition in, in perception that happens as a result of engaging with farming and with your project in particular. Like, how do people arrive to you and their kind of perspective on it, and then what happens? Um, in the course of, well, I don't know if it's any transformativeness, but I, I, bet, I bet something happens. <laughs> Let's hope, right? <laughs> sure, I can talk about that. I mean, it sounds really cliche to talk about how transformative it is, but I, there really is no other way. I think my favorite story that I did some writing about recently was um, we had a, a group of teens um, you know, ages maybe 14 to 17, out on the farm this summer. And a lot of, a lot of youth just come for a day, um, sometimes a week. It kind of depends on the program. Um, but this particular group uh, was from a, a film camp. They were making movies and kind of were interested in setting and interested in a different, you know, out-in-the-field experience. And they're wonderful kids, wonderful youth. And there was this one young person who um, had some learning disabilities and really struggled to connect with others socially and to verbalize what he was experiencing. And in the opening circle, we, we do a little activity where we, you know, they get out of the van or off the bus and we say, you know, go find an object in nature that represents how you feel at this moment and then bring it to the circle and use it to introduce yourself. So I was noticing this young man 
I'll call him Kareem, um, was just even in that opening circle struggling to share. And, you know, after that we went on a tour around and he, um, he and many others decided to take off their shoes somewhat reluctantly, but it was sort of between ruining their brand new Nikes in the mud or like experiencing this sensation of dirt on their bare feet. And so some of them kind of encouraged each other and took off their shoes. And we were laughing and finding worms. And, and, you know, I don't think they paid very much attention to Jonah's tour, but that was beside the point. It was really this, this sen- sensual, like, you know, sensory-based experience with the, the land. And at Closing Circle, this young man, Kareem, he found his voice, and he explained how his experience when he, when he put his feet on the earth without the shoes in between, that all these memories came to him that up through his feet that he had not had for a long time. He said his grandmother had passed away when he was young, but before she passed away, she had taught him to grow food and to hold insects and, you know, to be in nature. And he had not remembered any rural experience. He, like all of the kids in the circle, said, I've only ever been in the city. I've only ever been on concrete. This is completely new. But but actually touching the earth made him remember. And he was so, like, touched by this memory, remembering her. He decided to do his movie, um, you know, about honoring her memory and a bunch of the other kids were interested in that idea and they wanted to make a movie also about um, their loved ones who had passed. And, you know, that, was, that wasn't in the curriculum. That wasn't something we planned. But I think, you know, the, the beauty of a lot of our, our work is that the land is good. Like growing food is good. Preparing food for your friends is good. And so it's really just an introduction to the experience. And, you know, we have a great curriculum that I'm proud of and activities and all that stuff, but primarily it's like how a plant wants to grow. You know, it's like just get out of the way. Don't, don't put any obstacles between the seed becoming a plant, and that's what it is designed to do. And I think that similarly all humans are meant to have some connection with the food cycle, whether it's growing food or preparing food and sharing, eating with friends. Like that's a natural way of being, and it's a natural way of us to be with the earth. Um, and it's just a matter of reintroduction and remembering. And I would say pretty universally, I mean, maybe there's one exception, and we've had 500 at least you know, young people come through. Um, people leave the farm saying, like, I didn't know I liked that food. I, I really enjoyed it, or I didn't know I liked to be outside. And I really enjoyed it. It seems to be... Um, pretty transformative. We had a young person tell us, ask if he could have his birthday party at the farm instead of like Six Flags or something, you know, (laughs) that was a true complicant. Um, I think probably the group that is most important for of all the populations we work with is uh, kids in residential foster care. You talked about treating the land as family and as home. And these are children that break my heart because they don't have, they literally don't have family. They have staff. And that's different than family. And seeing that longing to belong and connect and how fulfilled they are in those, like, few hours or moments or days that they have on the farm. Um, I don't know. It speaks to, like, basic human need. I don't know how many kids have asked me to adopt them. I would love to adopt them all and have them all on the farm, but I'm working that out with Jonah. Um, But, yeah, kids need land. I guess that's the basic thing. Yeah, kids need land. Kids super need land. That's amazing. Um, there's also something so raw about um, the way that children respond. I don't know. I just had a little child coming and visiting last weekend, and her, um, she's so open. She's so incredibly open to nature, and she's, like, laughing at nature, though. <laughs> she's, like, completely messed <laughs> up by yeah. the, the jokes 
that are in in you know in the wild, and um, I don't know. I found myself really coming out into my. Oh, I, I don't know. Just children are wonderful. <laughs> um, Agreed. Mm-hmm. We talk a little bit about um, the challenge of you know of running this super idealistic um, uh, meta space in the real world and. Um, and, uh, you know, what people who are totally blown away by what your mission and work is might want to consider and know going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Um, so these are great questions. You know, I'm, I'm on the farm every day. Um, and, you know, straight up, farming is hard work if it's, if it's, a uh, hundred degrees outside, you have to go out and work. If it's forty degrees and raining, you have to go out and work. I think someone—I uh, really love this. Someone said the, the difference between a gardener and a farmer is the gardener goes in and drinks tea and watches it rain, while the farmer's out in the rain. And it's just you know it, that's that's the story of it. Um, yes, I think that our farm is definitely based on a strong set of ideals and. Um, but when it comes down down to it, like we are out there with the apprentices, you know, moving that earth and and growing that food, and it takes a lot of work. And um, it is not a profession to get rich in at all, uh, not even close. And um, we've been really fortunate that Leah is also a full time um, high school teacher. Um, and her work that she's actually integrated into um, our work as activists more and more over the years. But um, we're fortunate in that we've been able to kind of grow our farm as a business slowly. And so um, little by little, we are working towards the farm being a financially sustainable entity. But we're not fully there yet. And um, I, I guess if I had something I, w- I, would, I would say to other other people or young people considering getting into farming as a profession, like you are choosing it because you love the land, you love to grow food, you love the lifestyle. Um, But don't feel like you need to drop everything and be only a farmer. The truth is many, many farmers, um, I think probably more farmers than not in this country, have outside jobs and outside income. And so as we designed our farm, we started with our mission statement. Um, and at the Young Farmers Conference this, this December, actually, we'll be giving a workshop on, on writing a mission and, and creating a mission-driven farm project. Um, but we started with our, our mission, which embedded in that is what is the lifestyle that we want to have? How do we want to be surrounded by family and community? Um, and then from there, like, how do we achieve this? Uh, how, do we, how do we move forward? And if it, if, it, if it doesn't jive with our mission, then we have to really step back and say, well, is this something we want to take on? Or do we need to revisit our mission at some point? Um, and we take that very seriously. So um, that's really allowed us to kind of move forward with these strong set of ideals, um, grow slowly, and bring in all these different types of programming. Um, but it is... Uh, it's hard. It's hard. There's so many dynamics, and, and especially as an educational institution, 
um, as well our, our apprenticeship program um, where, where people live with us in the house and we have a very collective setup where we cook together and we live together and we clean together and, and we work together. Um, it's, it's, it can be really intense. And so we put a lot of intention into um, our kind of share outs and, and real talk with each other, conflict mediation, um, reflection spaces, stuff like that. Uh, just to always, always have this feedback, this constant feedback loop of how it's, how it's working for people because we recognize no matter how intellectually prepared you are for it, there's no way of being, uh, being really prepared for, for what it's like. It's, it's actually like becoming a parent. I, I always tell people there's no way, if you, if you can never fully be ready to be a parent. And I think uh, as we talk about the, the land as a child, it's the same way. You're like, there's no way you can be ready until you just do it. Yes, the parenting, the total devotion. Um, we've been talking a lot about um, commons here and and what it is about spiritual communities and monastic communities um, that makes them able to overcome such odds and and maintain, you know, quite you know, right relation with each other and with a place over a long period of time and. You know, um, comparing those spiritual communities um, and monasteries with, you know, more kind of like the 70s communes and reactionary utopias and starting to figure out, well, what is it? Like, what is it about the maturity of a person a person, um, and their own kind of personal practice that allows them to, to, to work together for a long time and not to schism and freak out, but to... Um, be able to sustain um, human scale community and and then what is it inside of the young farmers and their lives that we see um, that I've been looking at for you know as like a little naturalist of this movement for a little while and mm-hmm. that something about going all in as you're saying you know like a child you have no other choice you kind of risked everything and now you have to make it work um, that that puts you into a, a position of personal growth that you you can't really get ter- too many other ways. Um, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. lead it anywhere else. I'm just going to ask Leah to respond and if what her thoughts are. Hmm. Well, I do. I think I agree with Jonah. I think there is a way that it's a I, my experience with committing to the land was actually more difficult than birthing and raising children. I think it demanded more of me as a person and more of us in our relationship. And um, I think the biggest challenge for me right now, you know, currently is essentially having three plus full-time jobs. It's uh, I'm the educational director on the farm we have hundreds of people coming through for programming. It's evenings, it's weekends, it's summers, it's vacations. It's while I'm at work in between, you know, and then I have a full-time teaching job that's very demanding and I train the teachers and present at conferences. I do this international work in Haiti. I raise my kids, I dance. And so it just feels like uh, it just is very difficult in our current economy and the way that land and farming is valued 
to not have a hectic lifestyle and, um, and still be able to like, put food on the table. And so I feel like I, I bear the burden of hecticness and I'm looking forward to trying to find balance. You know, Jonah and I are dedicating this upcoming year. We're honoring, speaking of honoring ancestors, Jonah's ancestors are not African heritage. They are Jewish, Sephardic Jewish. And this coming year is Shemitah. It is the agricultural Sabbath, which was um, put forth in Leviticus in the Torah and requires that the land is left fallow um, every seventh year. And while we're not honoring a complete fallow, and in fact, historians debate whether anyone ever did that, there are some really important principles of Shemitah that we're going to be implementing this year. We're calling it a year of questions. We want to really look hard at financial sustainability and make a three-year plan that will get us to paying living wage salaries for everyone who works with us and for us, including Jonah as manager. Um, We're looking at whether our current doorstep CSA distribution farm share model is the best for the, the communities that are marginalized that we try to serve or whether there's other models that we want to look at. We're um, incorporating our nonprofit, you know, creating a 501c3, developing infrastructure to make sure that our interns and volunteers are more comfortable and have more autonomy, developing a board. So there's a fundraising. So there's all of these um, components and and in Torah, you know, in Jonah's ancestors' teachings, it really lays out that shemitah, that that time of rest, is um, for the land is not only a ecologically sustainable solution, but it also provides those who work the land with an opportunity to divert their attention on all of those projects that take the back burner, and they actually list them out around arts and community and business. And so it's interesting to to look way back, you know, look back thousands of years and say, what can we actually learn about rest? And reflection, I mean, it's, it's looking like a pretty busy year. I don't know how restful it will be. We'll try. But, I mean, the first uh, several months will be abroad. I was had the honor of being awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to study sustainable agriculture in Mexico. So our family will spend some time in Chiapas and Oaxaca um, learning from indigenous communities and trying to turn that into curriculum that we can use not just on the farm but through the nationwide network of schools that I work with. Um, so there'll be some travel, some learning, some reflection, some rest, and then we're hoping that you know the 2016 year will just be that much smarter because we really do want to be a model of not just ecological sustainability but financial sustainability and sustainability of our own energies. Like on the track we're at, I will be depleted, um, and that isn't fair to show as an example for other people. Yeah, um, we're running out of time, and I see that we're all running out of time in terms of the amount of useful energy that we have to bring to bear in initiating and <laughs> and how, um, I don't know, just come looking at pictures of Daniel Grover who came back from Europe, um, at the amazing infrastructure that peasants have in, uh, inherited um, and how much easier it is to farm when you don't have to build everything from scratch, as many mm-hmm. of our greenhorns end up doing, um, mm-hmm. and can kind of settle into um, a rhythm that's a little bit more human. Um, so I want to make sure to give you guys a chance to announce anything that's coming up, and I want to alert folks who are listening to um, upcoming events in Greenhorns World. So let me let you think for a second if you have some announcements. Um in Greenhorn's world, it's coming up. Um, uh, wow, there's so much coming up this month. Um, I'm going to give a talk with Vandana Shiva at the Slow Money Conference in Louisville and at the Acorn 
um, Acorn and Farmstart are doing a combo conference in Canada. Um, there's also the Biodynamic Conference, Nissan Conference, um, Stone Barns Conference. Um, this is really conference season. We Greenhorns have been um, uploading to our events page many, many, many wonderful events, regional events, and smaller events to the calendar. Um, so if you're kind of cruising around thinking about what to poke around into, check it out if you wouldn't mind. We are pretty proud of nicely updating our pages. Um, and then I want to give you guys a chance to make a call out. Do you need interns? What do you, what do you need? What do you have? Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity. Um, well, definitely come check out our web website and newsletter blog at soulfirefarm.com. We're going to have a big announcement of our um, fundraising campaign launch on December 15th, so people should check that out and see how they can contribute, not just with money but other resources, um, so that we can really build the best model of food justice farm that we can. And, um, of course, also come check us out at the Stone Barns conference will be presenting the afternoon of December 4th. And finally, for black and Latino farmers out there or aspiring black and Latino farmers, we will be having in 2016 um, two different week-long immersion programs where you can be trained in uh, cooking and farming and processing animals and wild crafting and all those kind of homesteading and small-scale small, small scale farm skills. And so all of that's on our website, and you should be in touch with us. Right on, right on. Well, goodbye, everybody, and talk to you next week. Thanks, as usual, for your earballs, and um, we hope to continue to deserve them. Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.